Before we get started with the show, we wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. If you've been enjoying Always Take Notes, please do consider supporting us there. It helps us keep the podcast going. If you support us on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards as well as a shout out on the show. Thanks to our latest donor, Anton Fries. Anton left the Navy last year and is now Assistant Professor and Chief of the Division of Plastic Surgery at the University of Texas in San Antonio. So a slightly different background to some of our recent Patreons. He said, he moved here for the weather. I love the podcast and have taken a few tips for writing academic papers, especially drafting and editing. He also enjoyed the recent guest from Wired and FHM. Some of the 1990s cultural references really hit home, but definitely not the loaded generation. Thank you very much, Anton. We've recently launched a new tier for our most generous supporters. If you pledge $20 a month, you get a free two-month trial to Otter worth $26. Otter offers automated transcription and live note-taking for in-person and virtual meetings. I found it to be a huge help with transcribing interviews for pieces. You also get access to a series of mini episodes from previous guests on the show, in which they answer three revealing questions. The latest episode features Phoebe Hurst and editor advice. Here's a snippet. I know that when I was starting out, I spent a lot of time, you know, writing pitches, applying for jobs, um, updating my website, researching for stories. And all of that's really important to be a journalist and really part of your job. But just as important as making sure you've got enough input and enough inspiration um, in the things that you're reading. Um, so I, I found that when I, as soon as I got the car. Hello, and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, we speak to historian and novelist Simon Seabag Montefiore. We spoke to Seabag, as he asked us to call him, about interviewing Margaret Thatcher as a schoolboy, about his adventures in the Russian archives, and about combining writing history and writing novels. It's another episode recorded remotely, so please forgive us for some audio hiccups, but it's a great episode. We hope you enjoy it. Seabag, it's great to have you on Always Take Notes. Thanks so much for finding time. Uh, I wanted to start with your interview with Margaret Thatcher in your school magazine in, in 1983. Um, a fascinating read. I was wondering if you'd tell us a bit about, about how that came about and what that experience was. So it's like a year post Falklands, sort of Thatcher, Thatcher and Hyde period. What, what was the whole, the whole process behind that one? First of all, it's great to be talking to you. Um, thanks for having me on this. We've been meaning to do this for a long time, so it's great to, um, it's great to finally do it. Um, I, yeah, the Thatcher, the Thatcher interview was, was really fascinating. I mean, even for a schoolboy, but of course, in retrospect, that since she's such a sort of great, a great figure in political, British politics, um, it's fascinating looking back at it now. Um, I, was, I, was, I think I was 17 or 18, and there was me and another boy at my school, Harrow School, wanted to, we wanted to, we suddenly had this great idea that we should write to the Prime Minister and ask her for an interview. And of course, the chances were, were that we would never get that interview, but we wrote to her and amazed, we were amazed um, to get a letter back from, from, from her saying, I'm giving you an interview. And of course, you know, there, there were connections to, to um, Harrow School, her, her son had been at Harrow School and so on. But nonetheless, it was quite an extraordinary moment. And so, you know, we, we bought suits and went off to Downing Street. And, you know, it was, it, it was at high, as you said, at high Thatcher. And of course we were very excited. And, um, and it was just sort of, it was just a sort of gripping moment. It was right after the Falklands War. Um, it, was begin, it was the beginning of all the, um, you know, it was in the middle of all the sort of struggles against unions of various sorts and the, the, the coal miners and, and what have you. 
and you know we went into Downing Street and we were fascinated but I, I came at it from a from a sort of slightly slightly puerile uh, um, direction which was that at the time I was a sort of I, I think I regarded myself as a sort of Trotskyite Maoist so obviously I wanted to be as kind of provocative as possible when I spoke to her and um, regarded her as a sort of as as, as the enemy um, but in fact, she was incredibly nice to us and, fa and, and fascinating about everything and fascinating about power. And a lot of what she said, um, you know, rings, rings, resounds through the ages, really. So it was an amazing experience. I quite liked in your sort of write up of it in the in the magazine afterwards, saying that she exploited any flaws in your questions, anything where she could sort of turn it back on you as interviewers. She did. <laughs> was it a sort of an early exercise in how to craft to the point, direct questions. Yeah, I mean, she was, you know, she was she was astonishingly impressive. I mean, even as even a sort of teenager could see that she was extraordinary. And I've met all the prime ministers since, I think. And you know, no one, you know, no one really comes close to her um, in terms of sort of, of sort of totally penetrating intellect. I mean, she was incredibly sharp, incredibly powerful. She was kind of tiny with that kind of huge head of hair, that huge hairdo. And I remember when we first saw her kind of walking in the distance, we were, we were both kind of just intoxicated by the sight of that sort of huge hairdo coming towards you. But she was herself tiny and she was extremely kind of indulgent to us, however cheeky we were to her. She kind of, um, she kind of, she, she, she slightly twinkled, but she took our questions with absolute seriousness, which of course, you know, we were delighted about. Um, she, you know, she she talked to us as if she was talking to the you know, the editor of the Times. What became of your co-interviewer? Um, I, 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 he was called Scott Martin. I'm not sure. It's a very good question. Um, I know he's out there somewhere. So if he listens, listen to this. Hello. But um, you know, it was it was it was an amazing thing to have done. I remember at one point she, at one point she suddenly got up and she came over to me and I was kind of languishing in a very kind of slightly sort of loose manner trying to trying to show how un, sort of unimpressed I was by Downing Street and prime ministers and generally and um and, and she sort of looked at me she looked me up and down and she, then she just said in her in that sort of amazing voice she said like pull your socks up and I sort of went what and she said like I said pull your socks up and she was pointing at my socks and they actually were kind of down around my ankles and she, and she said it again. And in the end, I sort of just like pulled up my stocks and obeyed, and obeyed what she said. So it was a sort of, she was, she was, she was um, pretty terrifying actually to, to me. But uh, the funny thing was that afterwards she said to her, she said to her private secretary, um, which, which was later in, when they opened up the archives, it was in some of the notes from the, their meetings that day. It said that schoolboy was extremely impertinent, and we're certainly not going to waste any time with schoolboys getting schoolboys interviews ever again. So, so, um, but it was, but it was very, it was, you know, I mean, I must say, she was, you know, it, it was life changing moment. I, I think it's good, it's a, it's good you you chose to ask about this because it was a life changing moment because it really, it really made me decide that I wanted to write. And I was fascinated by history and fascinated by how power works. And, um, and you know, she, sh she showed us around Downing Street. She, she actually was supposed to be about 15 minutes, but of course she took much longer. I think she, she quite enjoyed the whole thing. She showed us all the prime ministers that had been before. And of course, Churchill had been at Harrow and she was, she was fascinated by Churchill as all prime ministers seem to be. 
How did you prepare for that interview before we move on to your later, you know, journalism and everything? But how did you prepare for that interview in particular? I actually don't remember any preparation. I mean, we, you know, obviously, you know, we just decided to accuse her, to try and accuse her of all the sort of things that we thought were probably, you know, had she had she launched the Falklands War as a sort of political as a political measure to improve her popularity? Was she using um, extreme left wing people on in the Labour Party to to discredit the opposition? So, you know, the same questions that you, anyone would ask her today, probably, and they were pretty obvious questions, but that's what we, we asked her all those questions. Um, why had she given a peerage to her deputy, you know, to, to Willie Whitelaw, and the hereditary peerages, it weren't hereditary peerages over. So we asked quite sort of, you know, we asked her quite confrontational questions. And as I said, she sort of answered, she answered them as if, as if she was in the House of Commons, virtually. Could you tell us a bit about your, your kind of period at university and then, afterwards when you're when you're doing banking and stuff like that your your route towards writing as it were through these other things that that you did immediately after you'd left school well I mean I went yeah I went into banking I mean my family had come from was a banking family and um in the 19th century and and, and half, the first half of the 20th century and I was interested in this and also I was interested in the sort of the zeitgeist of the time and I think that a lot of writers have never worked in an office um and have no idea how life actually works and sometimes you know I think so I think sort of journalists um, writers have no clue about commerce about corporations so I, I always wanted to be a writer in the end but I actually thought that um, that it would be quite a good thing to know how, how how sort of companies worked and how people went to work and offices and so on and actually I'm really pleased I did that because it's really it's really paid off in many you know in many ways in in in, in history I mean it's very, it's, it's very good to, if you're writing about history to know how government works, how companies work. And so that's why that's why one of the reasons I did it. And I wanted to make money if I could, um, which is always useful, right? And how did you move into um, war reporting and who were you writing for at the time? My banking life was a bit of a was a bit of a disaster, but I was lucky that I made some money so I could suddenly I could always afford I could afford to go and start writing and write about exactly what I wanted. And I'd always been fascinated with Russia and I'd always studied Russia um, in, in history and so on. So I, so it just happened at that moment, I was living in New York and the Soviet Union started to fall apart and in 19, sort of 1990, 1991. And so it was just like a dream come true. Um, I started, you know, I just went over to Russia I, I, I rang up a bed and br- I didn't know where to go. I just, I knew where I wanted to go. So I literally just organized, I looked up in the sort of yellow pages, a, a, a bed and breakfast company. And I just, um, I just booked bed and breakfast to stay with Russian families or, or Georgian families or families in, in Uzbekistan, in, in um, Georgia, in Armenia and in Moscow and St. Petersburg. And actually it was the best thing I ever did in my whole life because the Soviet Union was falling apart and I literally witnessed, um, I literally witnessed an empire, the disintegration of an empire close up. And I knew families in all the, all the big major cities. And the great thing was that I, I, you know, I was able to, I knew what was happening in Central Asia and the Caucasus as well. And not many, you know, not many even Russianists or experts were really in those places at all. And the moment I arrived anywhere, civil war broke out 
Um, and I was always there to go, and I, I, I sort of started to sort of report back from there to the English newspapers and the American newspapers. And it was an amazing adventure too, because I'd spent my whole life in sort of, you know, boarding school and Cambridge, a, a, bank, a bank, and suddenly I was out, I was just out in this country, in this crazy place where um, warlords had their own private armies, presidents were facing coup d'etats, all the foreign powers were fighting for control in these in these new small countries. It was just extraordinary. And it was what I'd read about all my life. And suddenly I was actually seeing it and, and witnessing it. And so it's really it's really an experience that's paid off throughout my whole writing career. I was wondering uh, to what extent Lemontov was a kind of influence or a inspiration for that. I was seeing in in one of the pieces on your website you you list him as a, as one of one of your sort of load stars. And I'm, I read Lemontov when I was seventeen and thought it was like the most amazing thing ever. And you know, what, did you have when when you were off to sort of buckle your swashes around the Caucasus? Did you have particular literary touchstones in mind for that? Yeah, lots of. Th- I mean, I had all the sort of ones you'd expect. Um, Lermontov, of course, but Pushkin, especially, um, and Tolstoy, and Isaac Babel, and um, all the sort of all the great Russian writers, but especially those who'd sort of travelled around the Caucasus. Yes, um, they were all part of it, and they were all kind of. Of course, I was kind of. Well, you know, one, one couldn't help but think of, um, when I was in Chechnya, one couldn't help think of Tolstoy's story about, stories about that, or all Ermantov or Pushkin, all of them were there, all of them wrote about it beautifully, and in different ways, it's like, at different times, of course. Um, and, and yeah, so there was a great sort of, you know, there was a great literary um, background to it. Um, and also historical background, you know, places like Georgia, Armenia, um, and, and later also the Baltics are, are all kind of forgotten, that they, they were forgotten countries for, for 100 years, and, and more than 100 years, they'd been kind of forgotten countries because they'd been in the Russian empire since the early, late 18th century, early 19th century. And then they'd had sort of, you know, they'd had a few years of independence between the wars. Um, Georgia and Armenia had only been independent for three years um, in 1918 to 21. And then they'd been in the Soviet Union. So no one really knew anything about them. And that was also fascinating because, you know, they'd kept all their culture all this time and suddenly they were independent again, recognized internationally. And of course they were struggling to cope. And so, and they're extremely kind of beautiful countries, extremely colorful cultures, dense, deep cultures. And, you know, in Georgia, I mean, I really love Georgia. Um, I love the food. I, I you know, I, I love the singing. I love the, I love the people. And it's the, that's the country I got to know best out of all of them. But, you know, yes, it, so it was a sort of, it was history. All my reading was sort of, you know, came to fruition in these, in these amazing adventures for about five or six years. And I think I read an interview with you where you said it taught you how to write neat and quick copy. Is that right? <laughs> yes. I mean, it was very good practice because, you know, it taught you to write things very fast. I mean, I was, I was a freelance writer. So, you know, I had to sort of earn a, I had to earn a living as well you know I could sort of do I could go where I wanted but I had to get the things published and there were time stuff that was sort of suddenly the center of the world suddenly the center of the world the top thing on the BBC I mean it seems unbelievable these days because all you ever see is Covid or Donald Trump um, but in but you know I remember once I was sort of I was I was in I was in Georgia I was in Tbilisi and there was a coup d'etat against the president and I was with the president in the you know at his desk while he was under fire 
And, um, and it was the lead story on the BBC News that day. You know, there was attempted coup in, in Tbilisi. And lots of people had sort of had hardly heard of Georgia, as I said. And I remember I said to the, I said to the, I said that this was a president called Gansa Kurdia, who was a sort of slightly, slightly demented character, tormented character, who had gone from winning, you know, 90% of the vote. Um, within six months, he was facing a kind of multiple rebellions against him and a coup d'etat um, in his, in, you know, and he was besieged in his own, palace so he'd gone from sort of hero to zero in a very short time and I remember I said to him can I call my mother because she's going to wonder where I am and there's a civil war breaking out and he's and, and in those days you know the only one of the few phones that worked was this kind of satellite phone that he had on his desk so he said you know you can you can call your mother and he's and he had all these kind of followers outside with guns and stuff waiting outside and he went onto the balcony and started haranguing them in a slightly in, insane manner and I sat at his desk and rang my mother on the on the satellite phone, and my mother said, "said where?" He said, I, "She said, where are you? I hope you're not in in Georgia. There's a civil war breaking out there." And I said, "Like I said, I said, yeah, I'm 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 at the president's desk. We're under we're we're besieged," and um and then she said she listened for a bit and she said, "What's that terrible noise in the background? Sounds like Hitler speaking from the speaking from a balcony." And I said, "It is. It's the president. He's." He's addressing his followers from just from the from the balcony just outside his office. And she said, come back immediately, she said. Anyway, I was so I so at least she knew where I was. But you know, these sort of there the was sort of there was astonishing moments um, that that were very good training for, for writing history. But you know, but it, yes, one had to write these things very quickly. And of course, in those days you had to dictate everything on the phone as well a lot of the time. Um, that had actually been, yeah, my, my next question of how how did you get your copy? back because this is what the early 90s so unless you have the president's sat phone communications are, are rusty it was it was it was kind of hilarious i mean you had to dictate it and of course no one had ever heard of these places or could spell them or anything i remember one story i wrote about the chechens the the, the sort of copy editors just came in and just changed every word every chechen to check um, you know <laughs> and, and just I just thought they were doing a marvellous job, you know, a really helpful job just correcting, you know, obviously they, they obviously thought that someone had just misspelled Czech all the way through. And so the whole story appeared, appeared as, as, as Czech all the way through in the news, in, I don't know which newspaper it was, the Telegraph or something, but it was just hilarious. So obviously I was, I was at the time I was completely exasperated by that and infuriated, but it was just a time when, when, um, when you know, you, know people, you were just in a sort of new zone and also it was very fascinating because all these towns you were in like Tbilisi or Baku, um, they were filled with spies. Um, they were filled with quite adventurous people. They were filled with mercenaries and they were, and they were filled with um, spies from, from Russia, from, from Iran, from Turkey, from America, um, all, of them trying to, all of them trying to influence these new little countries in a sort of new great game. So it was, it was very exciting. I mean, I remember traveling with one of the warlords in his, in his he had a sort of, he had a whole lot of um, Mercedes. I don't know where he'd got them from, but he was traveling. We, we remember racing through the sort of Georgian mountains and um, he just nodded to one of his kind of assistants. They were all kind of dry, riding with machine guns on the outside of the cars, on the, the, on the running boards of these um, sort of Jeeps. And they all, had, they all had Kalashnikovs. And I remember he just nodded at one of his guys and he just put in a tape and they had loudspeakers and the tape was playing Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd. And so as we kind of raced through with all these kind of people who've gone, they were playing dark, they were playing dark side of the moon and sort of, you know, in sort of almost apocalypse now style. Um, and I remember thinking, God, this sure beats working in a bank. Mm -hmm.
our sponsor, Vitsu. Marta's story. If only each shelf could talk, reflected Marta, a Vitsu customer since 2004. Her shelving system began modestly and has grown over the years. It travelled with her from London to Valencia and now Amsterdam. This is the fifth time Marta has bought from Vitsu. Every time she speaks with her personal Vitsu planner, Robin, who reorganised her bookshelves to fit her Spanish walls and her Dutch hoose. He even sent her extra packaging to protect her shelves with each move. You might say that their relationship has become a friendship over the years. Marta knows she is valued and trusts the advice Robin gives. If your shelves could talk, what would they say? Vitsu's 606 Universal Shelving System is a modular, adaptable kit of parts. It can form the perfect home for your books and even the desk from which to write one. Visit vitsu.com, V-I-T-S-O-E.com or request a free brochure via email at vitsu.com by quoting ATN 606. Vitsu, makers of long living furniture by Dieter Rams. How do you negotiate access to a warlord, if I, if I may ask? <laughs> well, you just turn up. I mean, you just turn up and actually, <laughs> one, of, one of the things was that, you know, one of the things, that there were, I, I did meet other sort of journalists from the Times and Reuters and so on on these trips sometimes. But at other times, there was nobody there. There was no one else there because they were because they were all really based in Moscow and all the diplomats were based in Moscow and of course there were no embassies in any of these places yet so a lot of the time I was the only you know sometimes I was the only like when I was with President Gansakovia in Georgia I was the only person there at that moment because probably something much more important was happening in Moscow and they all the sort of real real journalists were in Moscow um, and it, but, it, but it also meant that some very interesting things happened like now, when I went back to Moscow, I remember the American embassy and the British embassy, the sort of slightly spook kind of kind of characters asked me to go into the embassies and debrief them about what I'd seen. And since a lot of these warlords and these militias were occupying former nuclear bases, Soviet nuclear bases, these these American and British characters in the embassy, they wanted to know, of course, if you know if there were nuclear we- if, you know, if I'd seen any <laughs> evidence of nuclear weapons. So it's actually sort of, I was thinking to myself, this is just, this is also just preposterously somewhat, somewhat farcical that these people are asking me if I've seen any nuclear weapons. Um, but, you know, we, we, they very solemnly debriefed me about these things. And I, I had seen missiles, but I hadn't seen nuclear, I, I didn't know if they were nuclear weapons, but I hadn't seen nuclear weapons. But the point was that no one knew anything that was happening down there, you know, and um, that was part of the excitement. How did then the decision to move to writing books, and particularly with Catherine and Potemkin, take place we really like on the show for people to lift the lid on the process and how it worked with the agent and the proposal and and then the real mechanics of writing it so yeah if you from this peripatetic kind of quite adventurous life in in the in russia and the, the ex-soviet republics how did the move to book writing take place i'll tell you what happened it the, the civil wars of the ex-soviet union ended in 1996 in about 1996 and everyone all the sort of war correspondents went off to the sierra leone and west africa and liberia and all that and and i just sort of i did i wasn't interested in west africa actually i wish i'd gone now because i already am interested in west africa now but at that moment i'd also felt i'd i'd, I'd sort of I really felt I'd risked my life enough. I felt I'd used up um, some of my lives out there. I mean, I'd really had some near misses and not because I was being particularly brave or important or anything, just because, you know, when, you're, when people are killed in these places, they're usually killed by accident, by people who don't even know who they are. And, and I'd had a few of those situations where 
I've sort of, I just thought like, God, I'm just glad I've made, I've survived this, I've done it. And I've, I'm going, now I'm going to write the history. And so I'd always been fascinated since I'd done Enlightened Despotism um, at Cambridge um, about Catherine the Great. And when I read about Catherine the Great, I realized there were so many books about Catherine the Great, but that her relationship with Prince Potemkin, Potemkin however you want to pronounce it, um, was, you know, had never really been written about seriously. And when I started to read into it, I realized that you know, he, he was a massive statesman who had never really been covered. And that together they were this very unusual um, partnership, a, ma a male and female partnership that was equal in a way that was very unusual, could only happen because she was, she was the actual reigning autocrat. It also involved love and sex, but it also involved power. So for me, it was my, it was like, I thought it was just like a perfect story that had never been told properly. And when I look back at many of the Catherine the Great books, and this always helps when you're choosing a subject, because when I look back, even really sort of admired biographies of Catherine the Great, often by famous French historians, had literally just repeated stories, you know, without ever checking them from book to book to book. With, you know, and so I wanted to, I finally realized I could go to the archives and I could probably find new stuff that no one had looked at. And so I wrote a proposal, I found an agent, I wrote a proposal and I, 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 my agent sold it. Um, I, and, I, and, I, and so I just went off to Russia and started to research it, which, um, you know, which, which, which was the joy because I went into the archives in Russia and no one had looked at these Potemkin archives for about 70 or 80 years because Potemkin and Catherine Great had been very out of fashion in the Soviet period. And so no one had really worked on them much. And so, that was it. I was I was off. And the Russian archives were just starting to open up a bit in the 1990s. How much time did you spend in, in them, actually, sort of in the archive? A lot of time. And they are a kind of special experience because they're not like, it's not like working in the British Library. Um, it's, um, it's really a special culture. The Soviet, Soviet Russian archives are a special culture. I mean, for a start, all the archivists have kind of, they're sort of hereditary. They're a sort of hereditary subterranean elite. Um, because you know most of the archives, a lot of the archives are stored underground because, because of you know in nuclear shelters, so they bring them up. But also they all marry each other because they all kind of because um, you know they all they all grow up together, and it's a great job to have. It was a great job to have in the Soviet Union. Um, it was out of trouble, and yet it was kind of quite privileged. So it was a very good job to have. So if you got it, you also got your children' um, jobs in the same archive if you could, or one of the other archives. And so everybody knew each other and they all married each other. It was a bit like, you know, a bit like a sort of village. And, um, and I, really, um, I really found it fascinating. And also there was a sort of, the, you know, there was a, there was a canteen there where, you, know, they, where, you, where you, got, you were able to get um, incredibly cheap food, very good food, sort of you know, borscht soup or something, but literally for the cost of about 10, cent, 10 US cents or something ridiculous, literally ridiculous. And many of the people working in there were old communist party um, members who were sort of as a hobby working on some part or other of, of Russian history or, or eccentrics. You know, in the Soviet Union, there was a sort of way to survive, which was to sort of to sort of lower yourself, make yourself almost sort of invisible. But one way you could do that was by studying privately, studying history in these archives. Probably never to probably never to publish stuff. Um, so some of the, these were probably very interesting people. I, I, I talked to many, you know, some really interesting people who was kind of who'd survived decades like this you know and this was their hobby their whole retirement they'd survived um and so it was just an, it was an amazing adventure and then of course the material was just so good you know 
Um, and out of it, you know, I found lots of new letters between Catherine and Potemkin that no one had sort of identified before. I found all sorts of sort of amazing stuff about, you know, his love life and her love life and his bills. And, and I really got, I really tried to understand how her, her court, her personal life, her intimate life, her love life worked and how the power worked. I mean, the way you really understand this stuff is by not just reading about, you know, Catherine the Great Letters, but the people that she's, but who she writes to and who they write to. And so I began to understand the circle, um, the elite circle of the tiny group of people that included her lovers and her top ministers. And that was just fascinating. That's the art of writing these books, actually, and researching these books, is to sort of get, is to get into that, is to penetrate that world and understand which way power flows and trust. We had Anthony Beaver on the show a while ago and he had a similar set of war stories about the Russian archives in, in the 90s. But a point he made as well was like, it was a narrow window, like they shut after, certainly the, the Second World War one shut. Was that the case for the stuff you work on as well, that that's not feasible now to get that kind of access? Actually, that also the, the World War II one, they're much touchier on, but that's the one thing they're really, they were really touchy about, obviously. So Anthony suffered from that, but he, he got in there in a window. Um, I was really lucky because um, first of all, the, the Romanov archives, the Catherine the Great archives, have no polit political importance now. So actually no one cared what I did with them. But I was extremely lucky because the Catherine the Great archives, the book I wrote, Catherine and Potemkin, um, allowed me, it was just the moment, it was just about 1999, and it was just the time that Putin was coming to power. And they were really kind of interested about recasting Russian history and we all hoped that it would be a kind of new liberal, a new liberal kind of government, a new liberal outlook. And so my Russian publisher, weirdly, and then this obviously this sort of thing only happens in Russia or countries like it. My Russian publisher was also the deputy minister of culture. And so he took the book to, 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 to Putin, I was gonna to say to Potemkin. And I don't know if Putin read it, I'm not sure he reads very much, but if he does read anything, it would only be about potentates um, like you know emperors and, and and leaders and prime ministers and so he for some reason he he just said like this you know this guy has like all people around him said this guy has treated these russian characters um not in a western way we'd expect of a sort of decadent westerner to mock russia to mock russia you know i hadn't really written the book about she was an infomaniac he was a preposterous clown no, I'd sort of rehabilitated both characters as serious great statesmen, as they should be, by the way. And so, um, so he said, like, we're, we're going to open the Stalin archives, and he should let him look at the you know, let him look at the Stalin archives first. And in this, I really was lucky because that was the big one, and everyone's fascinated in the Stalin archives. And Radzinski, a, a sort of eccentric Russian playwright and sort of semi-historian. Slightly, a slightly romantic writer who slightly kind of um, uh, let, let the subject fly away with him. He had had a little look at those, the Stalin archives, but, but no one else had really looked at them. And so, and I had already dreamt of writing a, a history of Stalin, a biography of Stalin. And so this was just like my dream come true. So I, so I, I went into the, into the Stalin archives and the Communist Party archives were much more, um, much more luxurious by Soviet standards. And um, 
I mean, in the Catherine the Great and Potemkin archives, I mean, literally, I fell through the steps on the way up to the archives one time. You know, they were kind of crazy. And, you know, when I started working in the archives, the archivist dropped a kitten on my head on the day I started from the sort of gallery. And it was all in the next Romanov palace, too. So it was an extraordinary, that was an extraordinary place. But the party archives were much more central and they were, they were much more, you know, they were much more recent, especially built building. And they, um, they had all the party secrets. And so because I had this kind of gift from the government, from the presidential apparatus, from the Kremlin itself, um, I had my own special room and the archivist brought me materials and actually, you know, really wanted to help me. And they'd been told to back me. So every day they brought me heaps of amazing new archives and they knew whose handwriting was whose. So I could ask them, was this Molotov? I mean, I got to know Stalin, but you know, is this, is this Molotov? Is this Beria? You know, so that was an amazing time. And I'm, I mean, every day I was just completely thrilled by, um, you know, I spent all day, every day there for many months. Um, and you learned Russian didn't you, before you went. How long did, how long did that take? Well, I, my Russian was never perfect and it certainly is not perfect now. I learned, I had Russian lessons for, for years, actually. And um, I never became completely fluent at, at talking, at talking it, and, I'm, and I'm very shy about talking it, talking it at all now. But, but I could read, um, but I could read simple documents. And of course, typed documents of the, of the Central Committee, in which many of these things were written, were actually written in very simple Russian. They were very long kind of communist, communist jargon as well, but I could read those. But I couldn't read the handwritten Russian documents, which are illegible. I could barely read the French or English written documents. Some of, some of the, some of the um, Catherine and Potemkin letters are in French, some of them are in Russian, but I, I could barely read those. But anyway, the point was that I, I, they helped me with the, um, they helped me with the, with the handwritten Russian ones, the notes, um, and the other ones I could sort of do myself with the dictionary. So yeah, so I never completed my, my mastery of Russian, but yeah, I learned it for, for a long time. And, um, and, and just looking at these things, looking at Stalin's, looking at Stalin's own, you know, um, writing was, was quite something. Was there any complexity that came from the fact that your archival access had been kind of signed off by the current regime? Did they put any pressure on you to, to write in a certain direction? Or did you feel there was any, what was it, how did, what were they hoping to get out of this, do you think? Um, there was no pressure at all. And they brought me everything I wanted and they didn't try and hide anything. And I think they were delighted to have somebody in those, because I was one of the sort of first Westerners to be in these archives. I think I had a sort of, and also, of course, I took them presents. They didn't want money, by the way, um, which was interesting. But, they, but I brought them things like, I remember bringing them um, huge, um, at the airport, I'd buy them huge Chanel number no. five bottles, as big as this, this computer screen, you know, that, that size, which, of course, they were delighted about. Um, but when I published the book, they were infuriated by it. And the whole kind of political, um, the whole political uh, direction had changed. And by then Putin had, had emerged as a sort of strong man, a, a, an autocratic author character leading towards authoritarianism, um, leading towards sort of, you know, orthodoxy, autocracy, nationalism, um, strong Kremlin. And, and when the book was published, um, it got exactly the opposite result the, the opposite um effect as the um Catherine Potemkin which had got sort of great favor I literally felt the icy wind of the Kremlin blowing from Siberia having known the sort of having known the the the, the, the warm radiant gaze of the you know of, of Kremlin favor 
And so I, I, I you know, I sort of suddenly I was ba basically sort of almost banned from those archives, a bit like Anthony Bieber has described when he talked about the world too much. Suddenly, like, you know, I, I'd criticized Stalin and I'd revealed, I mean, I, I, I wrote about Stalin. The whole point about the Stalin called the Red Tsar book is I wanted to write, Stalin had always been written about before then as a sort of ideological Marxist sort of character or as an inhuman kind of monster. And I wanted to treat him as you, as you would treat Geng, the court of Genghis Khan or the court of Louis XIV or the court of Henry VIII, actually. It's probably a better English parallel. Um, and so I wanted to do the personal history, the intimate history and how power worked among the ruling group, which was normally about six people. Um, and, and they socialized only with that six and only with their wives and children. So it was a tiny elite. And so the book I wrote was that it had, a, it had power, it had politics, it had war, it had sex, it had, and it had killing, a lot of killing, um, because that was the way that they ruled at that time. And of course they hated this. And they said, I, they, my kind of patrons there said, you know, you, you presented him as a sort of gangster boss and we hate that he was one of the great um, rulers of Russia, and you've and you've taken our archives and used them like that. Of course, it was all this material was all in the archives, you know. Um, and so I wanted to. After that, I wanted to write Young Stalin. I wrote them in the wrong order. I'd luckily I'd got all the documents I could from the from the Marxism Leninism Institute that that's this archive. I'd got all those documents I needed. There are always a few more you could find, but basically, they kind of banned me. And when I went to try and get my room back and I went into the archive, they all pretended they didn't know me. And they said, um, I said, hi, it's me, you know. And they all said like, well, you know, we don't really know, we don't know you. I said, we, we, I was here for like nine, 10 months, you know, every day. I read a story that um, one day you went and they said, you can't access the archives because two of the guards have got drunk and fallen down an elevator shaft. That's right. I mean, what happened was that they said to me, one time I went in, they said, okay, you can come and work, work here, but you can't get any documents. And I said, why not? And they said, yes, because two of the guards in the, you know, in the holidays got drunk and fell down the, uh, the elevator shaft and they're dead at the bottom. And I was like, and I just thought this was such a Russian excuse because, you know, I mean, it was in Russia, everything is either conspiracy or accident. It was a sort of disastrous accident. And this was both. Um, and I didn't know if it was true or not, but they said like, you know, we would bring you documents, but we can't because the bodies are in the, uh, the bodies are in the <laughs> elevator. So I was like, are they big I just couldn't believe, I, and they sort of, they said this in absolutely deadpan, but they said, so, so it, and it was very Russian because they said like, you do have permission, you have technical permission to work and we wouldn't ban you, but you can't get any documents. You can sit, you can sit in the reading room. So I, and that's where Georgia came in, which you were, we were talking about in the first place, because I went down to Georgia and I knew the new, I'd known, I was very lucky in Georgia because I'd known all the first three presidents and, and you know, quite, quite well. And I'd known Shevardnadze who was the second president. And then I knew um, Saakashvili who was the third president. And I asked him if I could work on the archives because when I went to Tbilisi, the, the, part, the communist party archives, they were all closed. And he gave me permission, he, he gave me permission to get into these archives. And these archives in Georgia, were a real, were just a gold mine and no one had worked on them ever. They were fascinating. And that enabled me to write the book, Young Stalin. And when, when that came out and it had this, you know, a lot of coverage and, and so forth, you see your profile rose, rose a lot. What was it like riding, riding that wave as it were, you know, the reception that those books got and so forth? Yeah, I mean, 
I mean, the Stalin books really sold all over the world and everything. And it is an amazing kind of dream come true when that happens. And um, I do think also, I mean, obviously, because I wrote them, I think they're very good books. But, but one has to realise that a lot of very good books um, and a lot of very good historians and novelists and so on, this never happens to. And there's a lot of luck in it. And as we all know, if we talk about the literary world, we all know that every now and then, not every now and then, every bestseller list, you look at it, and there's, some, there's somebody on there who's just got incredibly lucky and actually written a book that, you know, they, it may be the only one that is, is an enormous bestseller or they've become a huge star because of timing in some way or other. So sometimes they deserve it and sometimes they don't. Oftentimes they do, oftentimes they don't. So I just think I, I was very aware of that and I was very grateful that it had happened to me. And um, which is why I always try to help other people if they, if I can help with, you know, if I can help with, if it's good enough, giving a quote or helping them, in, you know, introduce them to agents or whatever, because I do think, I don't regard it as sort of, um, as a sort of guaranteed, um, guaranteed thing just because of quality. It has to be, you, you have to get lucky too, in the me, in all media life, don't you? In all creative life, you have to get lucky. So I got very lucky with those books um, and, they were sold all over the world. I, and, and since then, it's just, it's, it's been a sort of dream come true in terms of you know, the books being read by more and more people in, in more and more countries and, and so on. And that's, that's every writer's dream, right? One thing that struck me um, while I was doing my research for this interview is how many people read the book before it's even you know, a finished manuscript. Um, your acknowledgements are sort of hundreds of names of you know, experts that you've sought out. Um, how do you go about finding those people and how long does it take to sort of incorporate their notes and their expertise? Well, I think the key thing about, the key thing about um, whether you're writing fiction or nonfiction, this is true for both, is that um, I think sort of a bit of humility about your own expertise is essential. And the really good, when you look at the really good books, you always, you always find out that there's always some sort of, a, a sort of an array of geniuses behind a popular history writer um, and um, you know name anyone you like you always look if you look there's always they've always had somebody and so going to sit at the feet of the real experts on a subject is always a pretty good idea and so um, I always have everything checked by the sort of the biggest expert I can persuade to read it um, oftentimes they're outraged with what you've done with material by the way you know they can't believe uh, you've popularized it so much as to um, you know, it, it, but 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 I always ask everybody, and of course, with a book like with the with the, with the Russian books, I was incredibly lucky because I my first book I had Isabel de Madriaga, who was a sort of this kind of who was actually the Catherine the Great of Russian historians, and she was in love with Prince Potemkin, and so um, <laughs> she actually asked me to when I went to visit his tomb in Kherson on the Black Sea, she actually asked me to put a book of bouquet of roses on his grave, which I did. Um, but she corrected my book and she taught me how to write these books. She, she was so ruthless with the book. Things that she said were just so coruscating and just withering, but that's what you need. Because um, people do write very stupid things in books unless they realize, you know, as they, and so I hopefully, I took her lessons and I've, you know, I don't forgot, but the, asking the experts is key. And in, and, and, in, and in fiction, it's exactly the same. You want someone to read it who really has a good sense of what's good and what isn't. What is your method just for marshalling material? Do you, do you is it do you mostly use electronic systems or do you use big box files? Like how do you 
how do you keep a handle on this enormous amount of documentary material and so forth that you have? I'm really old fashioned. I, I, and I think the best, the only way to really do it is um, box files with cards, because I'll tell you why that is, because it sounds ridiculous in the modern age, but because the whole art of my use of archives is multiple use. You could call it layering, but it's multiple use of documents. So I might read one document that is Stalin writing to his hairdresser, for example, and saying he wants a new hairdo. Um, but at the end of the document, he might say, if you don't do my hair right, I'll, I'll cut your head off. He might say he wants to send his daughter there. He might say that he's, you know, he's gonna bring Molotov with him. Well, all of those things would go in different. He might say, he's, you know, he might say he'll, um, you know, he'll give the guy a new apartment and a Rolls Royce car as a reward for doing, being a good hairdresser. All of those things would go in different sections of the book. And um, you have to multiply file them and multiply use them. But you know, some, some academic historians, weirdly, to often tend to just use one document in one place and that's it. Um, and, I sort of, and I call that layering. So I will add in layers and layers of this kind of material, uh, which, which creates a very, very sticky and thick um, picture of the, um, of, the, of the life at that time. And do you, um, as you're researching, do you write little bits of the book as you go along or do you try to collect everything first and then sit down and, and then commit it to the page? I do it in a very inefficient way, which is to, I start at the beginning, I redo all the research and then I start at the beginning and I literally just race through without even looking back or hesitating for one minute until I reach the end. Because I'm more of a racehorse um, than a cart horse. Um, so so I, I sort of, I write the whole book and then at the end, I go back to the beginning and I read it through to myself with the pen. I print it out and then it's a complete bloodbath basically um, because it's complete mess. But lots of people do it completely differently. Um, my wife, Santa, for example, you know, she's a, she's a novelist and she, she writes her books immaculately. She goes through and smooths them out and everything is perfect. So by the time she gets to the end, it could virtually be published. Well, mine would be just be unintelligible to anybody until I've, I've put all the changes back in again. But it does work very well because it means you can move massive bits around. And you get a feel for the whole book as, as it's read. And it is a good way of doing it, but it's, but it's very laborious. I was wondering where the fiction, where your kind of interest in writing fiction came at what stage along your journey. And I was, I was also particularly interested in reading some of the, the fiction writers you listed as references, particularly people like Cormac McCarthy, Larry McMurtry. Um, you know, these are writers I really love myself. But when, I suppose this, you know, this idea we're talking about, about writing like Eastern Westerns and things, but, but more broadly, when did you decide you didn't just want to write history and you wanted to do fiction as well? I always, I mean, I, funny enough, I always, um, I always wrote fiction. And I wanted to write fiction first. And a lot of historians, and that's true of, I know Anthony Beaver, for example, um, wrote fiction first also. Um, but writing fiction is really my first, and, and Tom Holland as well. Um, a, lot of, a lot of good historians love writing fiction. Um, I've been really lucky in that um, my fiction has sold all over the world and you know, is, is being developed into a drama series and all this kind of stuff. And actually it's been, it's been really pr pretty fun, and, I've, and I'm very proud of that, of the, the Moscow Trilogy. Um, I always wanted to write it, and I dreamed of writing. Uh, when, I was, when I was in the Caucasus, I remember um, uh, just reading Isaac Babel, who's one of my great Russian literary heroes, 
thinking, God, I'd love to write stories about this period, about this time. And when I was researching in the Stalin archives, I, I found a picture of a girl um, who had been, who was really beautiful. Um, and she'd been, she was, she was in her early thirties or maybe her late twenties and she was the mother of children. And she was arrested and executed days later um, with a shot to the back of the head as you were executed in 1937, 38. And I thought to myself, that is the person I want to write a novel about. And so that's how Sashenka, the first of the Moscow trilogy came about. Um, and the story, the story, I mean, I already had this, I found the story in the archives actually. But so the stories in all three books of the Moscow trilogy, the stories are all true, essentially true. And in some cases I'd actually met, I've actually met people that, that these things happened to um, exactly. Um, and particularly the story of One Night in Winter, which is the middle book. Um, but in answer to your question about, um, about the hero, you know, the, the sort of literary inspiration. So a lot of it is inspired by Russian, by Russian writers, but also, yes, Elmore Leonard, you know, Larry McMurtry. Um, the third book, um, uh, Red, Red Sky at Noon, is, is really a Western, is an adventure story, is a Western on the Eastern Front. And, um, and it was really inspired by those Elmore Leonard and, and, uh, uh, and, you know, Blood Meridian and those books, which I love. And I just thought it was an interesting idea, but, you know, much of the fighting at that time took place on horseback, on the steps. And so it wasn't that dissimilar from, um, you know, from, from those Westerns, from the time of those Westerns. And of course it was absolutely brutal fighting, brutal time. Um, the first two books are really about love and they've really, all the characters, all the leading characters are women, really. You know, there's the, the Sashenka, um, there's, there's Dashka, there's Serafima, um, uh, there's Katinka. They're all, they're, all, they're all the leading characters are women and um, all the stories are real. And those books have been translated into many languages now. And it's actually, you know, in lockdown, it's actually been extraordinary because so many people have suddenly, it seems to, everyone seems to be reading them, they've sold. So it's suddenly, They've sold up, they've suddenly started selling again in an enormous way all over the place. So it's been very satisfactory. Simon, it's a, it's a rule of the podcast that we ask everyone about money and how it interfaces with their writing lives. Now, be as, be as frank or as, as guarded as you want, but how has it, how has it worked for you? So, I mean, and, and, you know, were you, what fraction of your income now comes from, from the history, say, as opposed to the fiction and the TV stuff? And to what extent did, did family money as well play in, in facilitating what you've been able to do? Um, I'll tell you what, actually. Um, I, came from, I came from a sort of banking family, but actually I wasn't really the recipient of a large inheritance at all. And so, um, which is why one of the reasons why I went into the city after, you know, after, after Cambridge. And I was lucky in there because even there I had all sorts of ups and downs. Um, I made a bit of money, which enabled me, which funded my about 10 years of um, adventures in the Soviet Union um, and really writing what I wanted to write, which was, which was the biggest blessing and the biggest gift I could have had. Um, but at the end of it, there wasn't much left. And so, so I really do, I, you know, I live, I, I live on right. I live on my writing essentially. And I have been incredibly lucky because, you know, I always wondered would I ever be able to afford to live on just the writing. But, you know, for you know, I gave up journalism in about in 1999, I think, which is about 20 years ago. And so since then, it's all 
I, I, I can't sort of break down the, the deals for you. Um, but what's interesting is that obviously originally it was just England. And then with the Stalin books, it just expanded and to, into all over the world. So I think there are now, I don't know how many deals there are. I, I don't know how many, how many countries it sold in, but a lot. And so of course, America's a big one. China is a very big one. Um, you know, I think, I think Jerusalem has sold hundreds of thousands, you know, I think it sold six or 700,000 copies in China, strangely, in Chinese. Um, so, so anyway, so basically, the, to be as candid as I can, the writing is basically, you know, virtually all my income is from the books and, you know, the media, television books and, and um, fiction and nonfiction. So, which is a great, which is a lovely thing, actually. Um, and in terms of your books, um, your collections of letters and speeches and your children's books that you co-write with your wife, um, what made you want to do those? And was it because Jerusalem was such a sort of massive project and such a sort of slog that you felt like a different change of pace? Yeah, I mean, that's a very, that's a very good point. I mean, after these, these books are, the history books um, are incredibly labour intensive, incredibly stressful. I mean, I actually find them very difficult to do. And so I try not to do too many of them. And they're always very, very intense. And the only way to write any book successfully is to be obsessional and to be obsessed about it and to be immersed in it, um, fiction or nonfiction. Um, but obviously, fiction is, is physically easier to write and there's less of it. And you're marshalling less material. So, um, so yeah, after, the sort of, after Jerusalem and the Romanovs, which were the last, last two big books, um, I thought it'd be really fun to do the to do the ra Royal Rabbits of London books with with Santa, which is also a nice thing to do with your wife anyway. Um, and and that's been so that was four books, and that actually has been a great joy to do. Great, very happy experience. The letters and speeches are a different thing. I mean, I love to read very widely, and I've always been interested, very interested in sort of world history. And so I'd sort of always had found letters in all sorts of funny places that I thought. God, this should be in a letters collection, but it isn't. And so my publisher said to me, would you like, you know, would you like to do a letters book? And, I, and, I, and, I, and I've loved doing an anthology. To anthologize is a very um, pleasurable thing to do, very civilized. And so, so I've done that. And then they said, would you do the voices, the speeches one? So those two books are fun. But also another reason why I wanted to do them was, you know, there's a certain sort of person that doesn't want to read a 900 page book on Jerusalem. Um, but loves history and wants to read, you know, wants to read a book of great letters um, from all over the world, from all over history um, that explains the letters in a simple way. And so I've loved doing that. And the, the books have been read by a completely different sort of person. There's a whole lot of people who would never read Romanovs or Stalin, but who love those books and, and are sort of interested in those books. And so I've loved doing that, actually. So they're, they're, they've been they've been they've been a lot of fun to do. But that's enough anthologies now, I think. We're coming up against our, uh, at the end of our time, but I wanted to ask as a, as a sort of final thing about TV and your work. So kind of the two, the two elements of this, so the, the documentary presenting, but also these, these adaptations um, and how they came about and what stage they're at, and then also what level of involvement you have with the screenwriters and things like that. Well, the TV, the TV what happened was that the BBC asked me to do a series on, on Jerusalem. And then they asked me to do another series on Rome. And then another one. And so then we did, we did five altogether. So we did Rome, we did great cities. We did Jerusalem, Vienna, Rome, Madrid, Madrid, Cordoba, um, Istanbul, 
I was very lucky. I did five series for BBC Four, um, which was which was, and I just love. I just love living in this sort of in a beautiful city, particularly in a sort of grand hotel, for about sort of three two months. <laughs> and um, and I love that thing when sort of when the sort of the doorman knows you know knows what you know knows what sort of coffee you want to take or what cocktail you drink. And um, and I just love hotels, and especially in lockdown, I've been sort of dreaming of hotels. Um, and bars and restaurants and great cities, Bosphorus, you know, the Tiber. Um, so anyway, yeah, sorry, before I get carried away there. Um, <laughs> um, that's the reason, so that's, that's, that's been an immensely um, pleasurable thing. But they are really, um, they really take a lot of time, um, TV documentaries. And there's a certain sort of BBC documentary, you know, where they, part of it is like, because you have experts talking on, and we had very distinguished people talking on our, documentaries we you know we we had other historians and so on but also a lot of it is like okay Simon will you walk just for sort of 10 minutes in that direction we'll film you from afar and then walk back and we'll just use that so, so that's very much the BBC method of, um, of documentary making anyway so there are longers to it but um, but I love doing it and actually I'd love to do another one now I sort of after a few years I sort of actually miss it but I, but I got a little sick of it as well um, the film and TV drama documentaries. I'm sorry, drama sort of, um, uh, that is a fascinating thing. And those are options that are bought by people and they just approach you. And sometimes they approach you in quite a surprising way. I mean, when Angelina Jolie bought the Catherine the Great and Potemkin rights, she, she didn't sort of, she didn't ring me and say it's Angelina Jolie. She just sort of offered for the rights from her production company, which was kind of extraordinary. So. It, it, my, I remember when my agent rang up and said, you, this production company, they, they've sent an offer through, but we don't know who they are and they won't say who they are. They've just, are, they've just, but it's a very good offer. So what should we do? And I just said, well, find out who, find out who are they? So then, you know, and then it turned out it was Angelina, it was Angelina Jolie, for, for example. Um, but the one thing you learned, it, 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 one time or another, I've sold all the books um, as they've all been optioned in one way or another. And the one thing you realize is that actually the challenge now is not to option them, but to get, find, get them optioned by people that are actually going to make them. So none have actually been made yet. I actually think this year, a couple of them will get made. So, which will be very exciting, but it's, you know, some of them have been optioned on and off for, for decades, literally decades, for more than, for almost two decades. But, and, and, and you get an income from that and that's very useful as a writer. Um, but of course, I'm just dying for one of them to be made now. Because the real, the real money comes from the first day of photography, right? It's not the option so much as the actual, you know, getting on set. So. Yeah, but it is very useful because I think at one point last, you know, in the last few years, I've had about 10, because I've also created some that I've sold um, original, original scripts and stories and stuff, and I've sold them. But, you know, it is quite useful because if they keep, if, they, if you have more, than, and I, I think I had about well, quite, a few, quite a few deals. And so if you have them, being renewed every, you know, every year, it's pretty useful actually, you know, for paying bills. Well, look, Simon, that's a, a great and very pragmatic point on which on which to end. Thank you for being a fantastic guest on Always Take Notes. It's great to have to have to have got you on, and we wish you all the best with your um, your multitude of of projects going forward. Thanks for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Hello, it's us again. Uh, Simon, what was your highlight of the interview with Seabag? 
I really enjoyed that interview, not least because I'd been trying to persuade him to come on the show for about two years. So it was a bit of a coup to get him on finally. Um, it was excellent. I mean, he's he's one of these guys who, you know, is clearly very established in, in that writing kind of narrative history niche. But I was also particularly interested in the fact that he combined it with novel writing. Um, because as we discussed in my episode, I'm, I'm interested in having another crack at, at trying to write fiction. And the fact that he saw the two not only as possible to combine, but potentially mutually complementary. I found that was really kind of heartening. What about you? Yes, and I equally enjoyed uh, listening to him talk about his early years as a sort of war correspondent and how that segued into his other writing. I am disappointed that we did not ask him about Get to the Spice Girls and how he you know, discovered that they were all Eurosceptics. Um, a majestic piece. <laughs> we effectively, we, we, we buried, buried the lead with that one. Um, but you know, we did, I did promise him that I would bring it up. So, you know, listeners should go and go and Google that. Perhaps we could commission a bespoke mini episode in which he talks about the Spice Girls as a, I'm, I'm, I'm a way to finally cover yeah. this one. Uh, anyway, Rachel, what have you been up to otherwise? I have been putting together some pictures for profiles and, um, covering for the print section this week. So it's been busy, but good. How about you? Uh, can you disclose your profile subjects? I can because it's arranged, so it's not going to fall through. Um, I'm interviewing a guy called Arthur Brand, who is called the uh, Indiana Jones of the art world. He rediscovers stolen and lost artworks, um, often from the underworld and in plastic bags and things like that. So it should be should be jolly. That sounds fascinating. Um, I have been uh, working on a proposal, this long-running thing that I've been working on for another book, which is is a bit under wraps at the moment, but with luck, that will move forward. And I've also been uh, doing the edit on um, a uh, piece of Outside magazine, and in a in a bit of um, self-aggrandizement, I was uh, nominated for the Orwell Prize for some of my work for 1843, which was very gratifying. So uh, all has been good um, at Always Take Notes Towers. This has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aikham. And me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer and social media editor is Artemis Irvin. Our graphic design is by James Edgar, and our score is by Jess Danheiser. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes, on Twitter at Take Notes Always. Our crowdfunding page is on Patreon at Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with us, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye.